1: You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed.
2: Our emails always available for you 24 hours a day. Cork Today at c103.ie. Now there's a story making the news. It broke yesterday. It's making all of the papers today. It's one that uh, I've got a real, real personal interest in and one that I'm going to be following very closely along with the many thousands of families who are have a an an adult with special needs or are caring for somebody with uh, special needs and this is to do with the strike action that has been threatened by up to 5,000 healthcare workers who are working in the community and working in voluntary organisations and there is a strike action over pay that they are planning on next uh, month. The workers in HSE funded agencies but they're not run by the HSE, Funded by the HSC. Pickets are going to be mounted at locations from Tuesday, the 17th of October. So in about three weeks' time. FORSA, SIP2 and the Irish Nurses and Midwives organization say their members will bring services to a, a halt. And looking at us here in Cork, there are 18 voluntary organisations and charities who are going to be going out on strike uh, on the 17th of October. And for us here in Cork, it includes the likes of uh, Co-Action in West Cork, uh, Cove Hospital, the Daughters of Charity, all of the DePaul Ireland services, all of the Enable Ireland services. We've got many Enable Ireland services uh, here in Cork. All the Family Resource Centres, the Irish Wheelchair Association Centres uh, will uh, close, as will St Joseph's Foundation and St Luke's Nursing Home there just some of the uh, 18. But I suppose for the big worry for me and for other families is how long when I hear that word of indefinite strike action. Now, the workers, they're not directly employed by the HSC, but the organisations are largely state funded. So they're funded by the HSC, but not directly employed by the HSC. And the problem is that the workers at these community and voluntary Groups They want their pay increased by over 10% and by doing that it would mirror increases which are paid to public servants under government wage increases. At one stage they were all paid the same uh, amount. Now talks at the Workplace Relations Commission, they were going on during the summer but they fully broke down in July and the various different leaders of um, spokespeople from the different unions are speaking. For example, ICTU says that the strike action is an inevitable consequence of the failure of the government to address what is a serious and growing problem with how the agencies are funded and that leads to a recruitment and a retention crisis within these vital uh, services. Workers in the sector now have chosen to take action, they say, because the state as the chief funding body for these services have failed to grasp the seriousness of the staffing crisis within the sector. SIP2, meanwhile, say the decision to strike demonstrates the level of frustration the union members feel as what they describe as dysfunctional ways in which parts of the community healthcare is funded. And the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, they say nurses in the community and the voluntary sector are now facing into another winter with rising household costs, yet salaries remain uh, stagnant. And the voluntary groups and the charities that have been asked by the Department of Health to make what the Department of Health are calling contingency uh, plans and they're asking them to do that to maintain essential services to the thousands, literally the thousands of people who depend on them for care and other uh, supports. But I have a feeling that when contingency plans are put in place, it'll be a little bit what happened during the COVID pandemic when shutdown uh, occurred. It will be the residential services that will get the contingency plans and I can fully understand why the residential services will get the contingency plans but I guarantee it's all of the day services that will close the very same as what happened during the pandemic. The Department of Health say any industrial action will impact negatively on the people who use the service. The department is urging all the parties to work on resolving any disputes through the appropriate forms in the interest of the users of these uh, services. And that's what I really hope happens that you know, at the front of all of those negotiations will be people fighting and thinking of our children and thinking of the service uh, users uh, because it impacted negatively. I, when I even read that statement, I thought, dear God, you should have come and lived in our house for, the. it was the bones of, it was six months from when Marsha's Day service closed and remember, you know, start of the pandemic there was so much, we were all so frightened and so scared and we were doing everything To protect each other, but particularly to protect our vulnerable uh, children. So we fully understood why everyone had to remain at home. But then it just went on and on and on. And it was a full six months before she got back into any kind of uh, a day service. And literally, I could see her uh, before, we could see her before our our, our eyes regressing, going into herself. She got extremely withdrawn. And we're now three years on from when she went back into her day service. And, And hand on heart, it's only now in the last couple of weeks, probably a month, we can start to see the spark coming back into where COVID and the pandemic took so much away from people with intellectual disabilities and people with special needs. And I know we often talk about what it took from older people who were cocooning and we've done you know, interviews trying to encourage older people to get back out into the community. But I really feel... Um, People with special needs, they've almost been forgotten about. We don't, you know, there hasn't been a lot of work on how they've suffered because of the COVID pandemic. And then, sort of, to hear yesterday that there could be an indefinite strike. And if you get both sides deciding to play, you know, hardball and nobody's going to give in are we going to end up in a situation where the strike action could go on and on and on i mean when i heard the word indefinite we've had a couple of one day strike actions and you said so you work around those and you think okay we you know we'll get around that we'll organize something for the day but when the word indefinite was mentioned it really really did uh, frighten me i mean already in our house yesterday countless discussions as to what we will do if the service does close and does close for an extended uh, period of time i mean i've even I've even thought about, it and I was speaking with in the office with John Paul about it. I even, I've even contemplated I may just take, you know, take time out of out of work because I hand on heart. I do not want to see, you know, my little girl regress again, not when she's doing so well. And like during the pandemic, you know, I came to work every day and it was great that I was able to work. But then because of that, because I was working and, you know, the prep that you've got to do in the afternoon then for the next uh, day, I was working full time and trying to look after her. But therefore, I felt my focus couldn't be completely on her. And I feel the only way if we were to go back to that situation would be for me to say, well, I need to dedicate myself completely to her because it's unfair. She she wouldn't understand. You know, she's no understanding of why a service suddenly closed. She doesn't understand that the HSC are not paying the wonderful, wonderful people who work with her and have her best interest at heart. She's not to know that they're getting 10% less than what somebody who's working in the public sector uh, is getting. And that's why I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see the Department of Health, you know, saying uh, to them, please get around the table, please try Try to resolve uh, the dispute, we have three weeks, uh, and hopefully in that three weeks, even though you know the talks broke down in July and nothing 's happened since uh, July, I really do hope that heads will get knocked together and that, you know, they'll see the light of day and they'll realise that it is the most vulnerable who uh, will suffer. I mean, for the Department of Health to say they will be negatively impacted, uh, to me, that's a mild way of putting how my child would be affected if there was an, inde- an indefinite strike. And as I say, I'm just one of, we're just one family out of thousands of families who went to bed last night and didn't sleep as comfortably as they did the night before. Thank you to your listener lovely comments. Uh, I appreciate those by saying please God this strike will be resolved uh, shortly it's, uh, and quickly. It's very frustrating that special needs always seems to be the bottom of the pile. God I agree with you on that at times it, it does feel it's just completely forgotten about uh, anyway, and that's not taken. As I say, the staff are just absolutely wonderful in what they do. Now, our ours to protect that continues on Friday here on the program. And this week, we're going to be exploring a new climate action arts project, and seemingly it looks at the ecological, cultural, industrial and historical heritage of Cork's Glen River Park. I'm looking forward to that. That will be on our "Ours to Protect feature, which runs on Friday morning at 11.45. John Paul taking your calls. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. 103.
1: Cork Today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. See MIG.ie.
2: Yesterday was reported that the Children's Ward at the Mercy Hospital is to close in the early quarter of next year to find out why and what are the implications for both staff and families. I'm joined by Fianna Fáil Councillor Ken O'Flynn. Good morning to you, Ken.
3: Good mo- good morning, Patricia. Independent Council. Sorry,
2: my apologies. My apologies. I'm thinking of the past. Independent. Anyway, let me start now. I, I tried to block that out. Do you? Okay. Okay. You you broke you broke this story uh, yesterday, and then we reached out uh, to the Mercy Hospital and the South Southwest Hospital Group for confirmation, and we finally got confirmation uh, yesterday afternoon that what was initially a rumor is actually true. What? How did you hear? what was happening ahead of the announcement from the hospital group?
3: Well, I was contacted by a number of staff that were deeply concerned of what was happening there. They were contacted by the Nurses' Trade Union. Um, management uh, refused to engage with them at that time and confirm anything or deny anything. Having satisfied myself, having spoken to three or four members of the staff on Sunday evening and satisfied myself with that, uh, reached out to the Nurses' Trade Union um there was a, there was plenty of information that was just everything was just adding up correctly um i wrote to HSE. i'm still waiting for actually an official reply from them um i got a kind of a holding letter saying you will be will be making an announcement shortly um i know the irish examiner and yourselves um received a reply from hsc since i suppose really the What was highlighted to me was the worries and concerns not just of the staff about their own jobs. This actually wasn't about their own jobs at all. Their own jobs are secure and safe and they'll be transferred to different areas and different divisions. The concerns of the staff were generally about the patients and the uh, rapport that they've built up with their patients over the last number of years. There was serious concerns as well about the amount of people that are using the Mercy Hospital children's unit that are living on the north side of the city, that don't have transport that have... You know, been coming there since the child was born or, you know, since a very, very early age uh, um, and using the facilities there and built up a rapport with not just the medical staff, but with the entire the entire facility. Um, and equally, I spoke to people uh, yesterday who are from the North Cork region going beyond Blarney up to Mallow that have um, that depend very much so on the services of, of um of the Mercy Hospital and people that were very dissatisfied with the idea of moving everything to the central campus of CUH, as you probably are aware, aware, uh, being the journalist that you are, the CUH have made an announcement to their 400 staff telling them that their car park will no longer be available. to them.
2: I so heard that. I heard that yeah. yesterday and I straight away thought of the Mercy Hospital staff who must have immediately been saying, God, where, where are we going to park?
3: Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, they're, that's been they're being discommoded and being told to bus in or, to, you know, park your car at a different area and walk and walk in at all different times of night um, and early hours of the morning. And weather. Um, the campus, and weather. And weather. That's true. Uh, but look, the reality is that the campus is overloaded down at CUH. I don't know when, when the last time you were there. Um, unfortunately, I, I, I was there not so long ago. And I witnessed it firsthand, the overcrowding, just even getting car space. And you know what? Parking your car there is damn expensive as well. Mm. But look, the, the reality the reality here is staff and patients and the parents of patients are very upset because they've they have built a rapport. They have the Mercy Hospital has been outstanding, and the staff and the doctors and the dedication that's there has been amazing. And what I'm saying to you, Patricia, is if something is not broken, there's no need to fix it. HSE has a tendency to come along and fix things that are that don't have a problem and ignore the pro, and ignore the big problem. Problems that are there in HSE, um, rather than ups- and upsetting people and upsetting staff. I- I will, really it also, um, now, can, will it also, Ken? Will it also
2: um, mean? Will it also mean no emergency department for children at the Mercy no, Hospital? No,
3: no oh. emergency department for children. So you know, if you're coming in from North Cork, if you're coming in from Malobueen, all, all that direction, you have to travel all the way out to the CUH, You know, and you and you're going through then the 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 C-O-H. Um, A&E as I understand it and there still hasn't been clarification on the oncology unit um, from HSE. I've, I've asked them particularly about that. I've had a number of parents upset saying look we're hearing this the staff have told us this and nobody seems to know where the oncology unit is going or whether it'll, whether it'll be available. And we're hearing in the back channels and rumours and conversations that I'm having with members of staff. And I'm talking to members of staff that are from doctors, from doctors to porters that are telling me this. And everything is, everyone is telling me the same thing. Nobody seems to know what's happening with oncology. Is it possible? Is it possible they would
2: leave pediatric oncology there?
3: It, it, nobody seems to know and nobody seems to have, have even thought of that. And from what I'm hearing in the background, it may take five years to have the oncology unit in the, CU- in the CUH. So therefore, you could have a situation where a child can be going from the oncology unit in the Mercy over to CUH and back and forth and back and forth. Which doesn 't make
2: sense to me. yeah you now know, I know in, in this statement the in the statement from the South Southwest um, Hospital group they say uh, this new development will this is when they 're talking about everything being amalgamated into CUH this new development will deliver high quality care for children and will provide much needed pediatric care consistent with clinical care pathways and the model of care and they point out that construction work is well underway at CUH on a 10 million euro 82 bed paediatric unit, which will have four surgical theatres. If it does have better outcomes for children, then surely that's what everybody wants.
3: Well, look, everybody wants a better outcome for their child, absolutely. The, prob- the possibility of this and the the, pro- the, the probability of this happening is, is very, very high. But what I'm saying is that there is a convenience there for parents. There's an A&E facility for children inside the Mercy Hospital. We can't expect to put... If you're putting everything on the one campus that is overloaded at the moment, and, you know, this policy of putting everything in the centre of excellence policy that the HSE and previous ministers of health um, have come up with, I'm not sure... If it's the one model that fits on, and you know, d- deducting facilities and putting everything in one in one unit puts a huge amount of pressure mm-hmm. in one particular facility. And you have to think we're not we're not talking about cattle here. We're talking about human beings, and in particular, we're talking about children. And you have to ensure that you are providing uh, a system where they are well looked after, where there are, excuse me, I have a, I have a big truck. Uh, I don't know if you can hear that. Next no, day. you're okay. Truck, uh, you're okay. But you are talking about children that have built up rapport with staff, with porters, with doctors, etc., that are used to using the facilities, that are used to coming in and out. You're talking very ill children, uh, and you're, t- you know, I, I'm I'm very concerned about that, and I'm concerned about the the lack of children facilities um, get, in the city. And you know you're putting everything into one campus. Uh, campus yeah, settled. but we know You so weren't but it's absolutely.
2: I, I I was I was there earlier on in the year. I was and I hadn't been there for a while, and I was really taken aback by it. I have to say how just how busy it was. I actually, felt for the staff. Yeah. We, we like, All but we know we job. know the health budget is to overrun by one billion for this year uh, alone. Is this a cost-saving exercise?
3: Well, you know what? I I think you're probably right. I think you're probably right that it is say it's penny pinching and say, and and saving costs but the reality is, is that it's children's lives it's mothers and fathers that are depending on on surgeons and nurses and doctors that they have built up rapport with that are familiar with their files that may be scattered. You know, I spoke to one member of staff, and they were told that, well, you know, if there's no guarantees you're going to see you hate, There's no guarantees that you'll be sent out there. You may be um, put into a different department, into a different type of ward. You may, you may, you may, you may not be working in in the children's unit in the next couple of months. And well, there's that uncertainty there as well. Yeah, Somebody's so, bringing know, up
2: about the par- parking and says, please don't mention my name, but I did hear from uh, somebody high up in uh, CUH that the staff are going to be asked to park at the park and ride out by the uh, city dump. I think they've already been asked to look at the park and I, rides, haven't I think,
3: they? I think, that, I think they've been asked, they've been suggested park and rides or take a bus or walk.
2: Well, that and kind of a, 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 a lot, a lot of uh, commentary coming in, people saying, you know, people who have attended and used the Mercy Hospital paediatric service saying can't believe this decision, this decision is being made. Somebody else says it doesn't make sense to think of a city and a county the size of Cork could end up with only one children's ward in one hospital. It doesn't make sense, says the listener.
3: None of it makes makes sense to me. Uh, And, you know, speaking to parents, speaking to doctors, speaking to the nurses, speaking to everybody that has a stakehold in this. You know, the the Mercy Hospital, your radio station and your sister radio station have done tremendous work raising funds for the Mercy Hospital over the years. And you know the good work that goes on in the Mercy. And you know the call and the the, the beyond um, after service and reach out that is there from the Mercy Hospital. And people have a lot of affection for that as well and a lot of respect for that. And the dedication of the staff inside the emergency is, is second to none. And as I said, I'm very much so of the, if it's not broken, don't fix it.
2: Yeah, somebody else. Mary in Rathcool says, Oh my God, what next? My two special needs grandchildren wouldn't be where they are today if it wasn't for the great work from the splendid doctors at the Paediatric uh, Ward of the Mercy Hospital. We now have two big worries uh, today because uh, we're hearing about the closure or the threatened strike action of the community and voluntary uh, agencies. Special kids are just that special, but the worry and care is just now overwhelming. And that's from uh, Mary. And in- Is it a fait accompli, Ken? I mean, I I know you're you're raising concerns, but can anything be done about it? From what I understand, it is a
3: fait accompli. Um, The nurses' union are getting involved because everything has been kind of cloak and dagger as HSE seems to be all the time uh, nobody is telling anybody anything including management and staff and you see the press release that it was released to yourself and uh, to other uh, journalists over the last 24 hours um this would have completely come as a shot to us all if I didn't um get the information from from the nurses union and staff that's the reality of it um and, and that's seems to be the way they're operating. And the idea is that they don't want to go to public consultation. They don't want to take anyone's ideas on board. They have their own idea from a central office in Dublin to say and at the flick of a pen they're making decisions that may look very, very good on paper and may look very economical and have saved them a couple of pounds here and a couple of pound there, but they don't realise they're dealing not just with human lives, but children lives Yeah
2: and families in out and the stress that that goes there. And, and from look, the and from your,
3: the if your child if your child is sick you have enough stress in your life, yeah. worrying about this. Yeah, and
2: the staff, you Ken, know, the, the, the staff you've been talking to at the Mercy Hospital, are they very upset?
3: Well, no, they're, they're, they're deeply concerned. Not so much upset about themselves, you know. They, their jobs are secure, and they'll tell you that straight out. They said, but you know, there's parents that are going to be disappointed. There's, you know, that they're used to the facility inside there. They're upset about the patients. I, I have yet to speak to somebody who's upset about their own predicament. I, I, they're upset about the patients and the procedures and how people are being treated by the HSE. That's okay. what they're upset about.
2: Okay. Not themselves, honestly. And just one final one, just back on the parking uh, issue. Uh, somebody says, uh, Patricia, could they not make a deal with the Wilton Shopping Centre for the car park side of Wilton and make an overflow car park for the hospital? It would be convenient to staff. Surely it's a no-brainer.
3: Yeah, well, look, <laughs> common sense isn't that common when it comes to public bodies and hSEs I think we all know that at this stage you know um look it, 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 it's, it's a sensible idea but the, your 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 caller has, has come in with but again that's a conversation that they have to have with a private with a private company. I think the company that owns that is a pension company actually um so yeah. it, it, you're, you're talking a, a big organization okay and of course there, as so.
2: they continue to build on the Wilton site it's less and less car park they'll have into the future.
3: Well, that, that's, that's the reality. Yeah. I, I had to take somebody recently to the A&E altar and, you know, just to, to park and the stress of that alone is, is something mm. else just to find a right. space, you know. OK,
2: we'll keep an eye on this one, but it is looking like it is going ahead and somebody said, when is it happening? Uh, according to the South-Southwest Hospital Group, they told us yesterday services will migrate uh, in April of uh, 2024. Uh, Ken, thank you for that. Uh, independent Councillor Kenner O'Flynn, thanks for joining us. God bless. Bye. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. Bye bye. 0818 103, 103. Um, A listener by WhatsApp says, why do they never seem to have any problem finding money for this uh, project? That's what I mentioned. It's a 10 million uh, euro uh, paediatric unit that they're building out at CUH. They never seem to have money finding the millions for that project they'll flood it with the tens of thousands of uh, euro uh, yet no money uh, for hospital waiting lists it is a disgrace Now it's been reported that US authorities have fast tracked a hearing over the murder retrial of father and daughter Tom and Molly Martins who were accused of the brutal killing of Limerick businessman Jason Corbett back in 2015 with the very latest on this story Ralph Regal of the Irish Independent uh, joins me and of course Ralph also co-wrote a book on Jason's murder with Jason's sister, Tracy uh, Corbett-Lynch. Good morning to you, Ralph. Good morning, Patricia. Uh, And you're welcome. Okay, why had previous retrials been postponed?
4: Uh, Yeah, it was a very difficult, um, I suppose, couple of two years really for the family because, um, as your listeners will remember, um, Tom and Molly Martins were convicted of the second degree murder of Jason Corbett, who was a 39-year-old father of two from Limerick. Uh, he was found beaten to death in the bedroom of his house in North Carolina in August of 2015. Now, Tom and Molly's trial happened before Davidson County Superior Court over July and August of 2017. And they were unanimously convicted of second his second degree murder. Um, Mr. Corbett was beaten to death with a baseball bat and a large concrete paving slab. And Tom and Molly Martins were given um, prison sentences of between 20 and 25 years, but they successfully appealed it firstly to the Court of Appeal in North Carolina and then latterly to the North Carolina Supreme Court. And on the basis of the Supreme Court ruling, Tom and Molly Martins were released from custody. They had served about three and a half years of that um, prison term for second degree murder and the Supreme Court quashed their convictions prosecutors decided to go for a retrial uh, and that was after a lot of pressure from the Irish-based family because they felt that justice had not been served and really over the last two years there were a number of delays and setbacks. Of course COVID was a major complication and all over the world there were major delays in terms of judicial um, proceedings and trials but There was a lot of delays in the North Carolina area because of defence challenges, various submissions. For instance, it was originally thought that the retrial would happen in the summer of 2022. Then it was postponed until, we thought, until the autumn of the year. Then it was postponed again, uh, and hearings took place uh, in February of this year. In February, everyone seemed convinced that the full retrial would happen in June. And in March, everyone was shocked when, without any warning, um, we were all informed that the retrial wouldn't happen in June. It would actually start on November the 6th. And there was a lot of surprise last week when it was confirmed that the actual hearing had been brought forward until October the 30th. So there were no reasons given for it. Um, Patricia, the family certainly welcomed the fact that it's an earlier hearing date. But there is a lot of um, a mixture, I suppose, of bemusement and concern as regards the precise re- reasons behind it.
2: OK, where uh, where will the retrial be held? And this is important because the Martins wanted it moved.
4: Yes. And the Martins effectively won with their application. And um, they made an argument that because of the level of media scrutiny on the case and in particular because of a social media campaign they argued that tom and molly martins now tom is in his early 70s he's a retired fbi agent and he worked for a time as a like an intelligence operative for the u.s department of energy molly martins is 37 at this stage and she had portrayed herself as a nanny even though she wasn't qualified to be one and that's actually how she met um, Jason Corbett who lost his first wife um, to an asthma attack leaving him with two young children. He'd advertised for a nanny molly martins applied for the job they began a relationship and they married in june of 2011 and the martins had argued that because of all of the publicity surrounding the case uh, one of their lawyers actually went so far as to say that the social media campaign that targeted the martins was organized by the irish and he said because of all of that the retrial couldn't be in davidson county and that's important because davidson county is quite a blue collar area, very much a working class community, and the Martins wanted it transferred to the nearby county of Forsyth County, uh, particularly to the major city of Winston-Salem. Winston-Salem's a very big city. Um, It has quite, I mean, it would be seen as far more white collar than blue collar in contrast to Davidson County, and that was seen as more in favour of the Martins on the basis of their background and the fact that Mr. Martins had been a federal
2: agent. Doesn't change the hard evidence that will go before the court. No,
4: it doesn't. And there's an awful lot of, I think, strategy that goes into these things. So in point of fact, it's going to be in a brand new courthouse. There's a new courthouse going to be commissioned in Winston-Salem within the next fortnight. And that's actually where the hearing is going to be held. It'll be before Judge David Hall, who's a former prosecutor, and he was specially appointed to deal with this case. And several times he has said that he was concerned at the level of publicity that this case had attracted. Now, certainly it's going to have enormous media coverage when it eventually does come before the um, uh, the Forsyth uh, Court on October the 30th. You're expecting a lot of television, radio and um, print media. There'll probably be quite a, quite a number of, of journalists uh, attending from Ireland as well to cover it. Will, will, um, will you ho- be
2: travelling? Because you, you travelled the last time.
4: Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to be there. Right. It's not absolutely confirmed as yet, Patricia, but yes, I certainly am hoping you, to be you there.
2: Found, you found that a difficult trial, Ralph.
4: Uh, It I did, I have to say, for a number of different reasons. Um, it went on for five weeks. Uh, it happened in July and August of 2017. And what what we really don't realise is just how hot it is in north carolina and south carolina over the summer Um it regularly went to 102 103 degrees over there so it was very very hot uh, the time difference was a major challenge so for instance patricia the trial might finish at five o'clock u.s time that's 10 o'clock here which means we're right on deadline so you're rushing to get copy over and um, people are ringing you at nine o'clock irish time with a question not realizing it's four o'clock in the morning in the states uh, so it was it was very tough. It was a lot of work. Um, the, the one major, I suppose, bonus from it, I should say, is that I, I got to know the Corbett family, the Lynch family, and they really are remarkable people. And I just can't speak highly enough of the dignity which with with which they've faced this issue. I mean, to lose someone, a loved one in such circumstance, violent circumstances is very difficult for any family. But then to face an eight year campaign for justice, I mean, this has been going on for them since 2015. Um, Jack and Sarah, Jason's two children, have lived more than half their lives under the shadow of what happened to their father and the wait for justice. So it has been very difficult and very challenging for them. But they really are a remarkable family with the courage and the resilience and the dignity that they face this.
2: Yeah, it's beyond it's beyond cruel what this family have been asked to do. And of course, what will be different, Ralph, this time round is Jack and Sarah are expected to give evidence, aren't they, at the retrial?
4: Yeah, that's the significant difference, really. I mean, there's there's a lot of evidential issues in terms of the forensics. Um, we're expecting that a lot of the forensic evidence will be challenged by defence experts this time, which didn't happen in the first trial. But the, the the major difference is the fact that we are expecting direct evidence to be offered by by, by Jack and Sarah. Um, there was none of their testimony. The only uh, testimony that was given was from Jack, and that that was as part of the victim impact statements um, just before sentence was imposed um, by Judge David Lee uh, in August of 2017. But this time, um, depositions have been given by both Jack and Sarah to the prosecutors in North Carolina. And we are expecting, the judge has imposed a very strict gagging order, and he's issued very, very stern warnings, not just to the prosecutors and to the defense teams, but also to the media, that nothing is to be reported that could jeopardize um a fair trial so he certainly has been very stern in his warnings so we have had very little confirmed in terms of the makeup of this retrial but we certainly are expecting that Jack and Sarah will
2: play a major part in it okay and when you mentioned that the the retrial is in Salem is that where the witch trials went on?
4: Uh, no, a different, no. a different this, Salem, uh, there, Salem, Salem, Massachusetts is where the famous witch trials okay. took place. Uh, Patricia, and you're dead, right? You're, you're absolutely spot on. They're, they were very, very famous and infamous trials, and of course, they inspired the famous play, The Crucible. Um, many years later, Winston Salem, believe it or not, was actually one of the centres of the US tobacco industry. Um, it's a very, it's a nice city. I mean, would I describe it as? It's certainly not like a New York or a Boston or whatever, but it is quite a pleasant city. And a lot of people even may not realise the connection, but if, if anybody has ever smoked Winston's Winston cigarettes...
2: Oh, yeah,
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I'm, I should say that I'm a lifelong non-smoker, okay. so okay. I'm not advertising. I, I never smoked
2: them, but I, I remember but Winston, seeing them whenever they do the old uh, TV ads about tobacco, it's Winston cigarettes come up.
4: Exactly, and actually that's where the name comes from, the name Winston came from Winston-Salem, which was very much one of the centres of the tobacco industry in the
2: South. OK, all right. Um, so the 30th of October um, and the family, uh, some kind of relief for them that at least it's going to get underway.
4: I think very much so. I think it, it, we're at the stage where the family really need closure on this. And I think everybody is hoping that they get the justice that they have fought so very, very hard um for it, it, it's going to be difficult because i think no matter what country you're in retrials are always more challenging than original trials um and as one lawyer once explained to me he said the, the difficulty with a retrial is that the defense now know what's, what's coming. coming and yeah. how to prepare for it and what they did well in the first trial and what they didn't do so well as so it's effective like a a, a, a do over where they know what their strengths and weaknesses are so it is a challenge but as you very very appropriately said the facts are the facts the evidence is the evidence and hopefully um, everyone will see the evidence for for, for what it is.
2: Okay, listen uh, we'll follow it closely when it does end up uh, in the courts and in the meantime if you're talking with Tracy, Jack and Sarah and the rest of the family pass on our best wishes but Ralph thank you for joining us on the programme this morning
4: as always an honour. Thanks, Patricia.
2: Good morning to you. Bye bye. That is uh, Ralph Regal of the Irish Independent. Some of your thoughts coming in on the Mercy Hospital that we spoke about on the fact that the paediatric ward is to move in April of 2024 onto a brand new paediatric unit that will be based out of CUH. Michael says the Mercy Hospital has got to be one of the most outstanding hospitals for attention, care of patients, you name it. They're just outstanding and that's as Michael is speaking from experience Experience, Especially under the care of Mr. Ger McGreal. Down through the years, the Mercy has always been number one, and that's for all age groups. So, Michael, disappointed to hear the news of the paediatric ward is to move. Somebody else says, It is just so sad to see the Mercy Hospital. It feels like they're being targeted again, says this uh, listener. And Anne says, CUH, C-U-H can be a pure nightmare to go to. I can't understand why they're deciding to move children from the Mercy Hospital and fun- funnel them all into CUH. The people in charge of the running of these facilities should be checked out as they're, uh, for their ability to do their job, says Anne. Well, you know, as Ken Flynn said, was a decision that was made in Dublin. Are they actually on the ground to see what is, what is happening and the superb level of care that's given uh, by the Mercy Hospital? And I thought it was interesting to hear because how it came to Ken, Councillor Ken Flynn's attention was uh, he had been contacted by staff who were, who were worried about this was before the announcement was even made uh, yesterday and uh, he said like when I, when I asked him how upset were the staff I was thinking were the staff you know were they not happy about having to relocate and maybe for some of them the extra travel times etc et for some they might live near a CUH but he was saying it was nothing to do with the staff themselves they were just all worried about their patients and that'll just show uh, the care that's given by the staff At the Mercy Hospital. Thank you for your feedback on that. And then Stephen is on on a different topic, uh, saying, I drove to Lismore yesterday. What is the story with the N72? It has got to be the worst national road that I've ever driven on. It reminds me of our own Ring of Kerry but 30 years ago it's simply atrocious. As Stephen who obviously is a Kerry man hasn't been on the N72 much. He says I mean with the exception of the N20 is the N72 not the main road in and out of North Cork? Does it not connect the two biggest towns Mallow and Fomoy? And for that Mallow and and for Moy until to of the whole road from the Kerry border right across to the Waterford border I would say there was barely four good miles on that particular road every car in North Cork says Stephen must be a wreck if they're regularly travelling on that road NCT how are you says uh, Kerry from uh, says Stephen from Kerry who just says but on a better note on the way back I did find Castle Hyde Cemetery and I went in and I actually found Sean Donlin's grave a gentleman if ever there was one all the best says Stephen and thank you and thank you for taking time out to find our Sean's uh, grave we we regularly chat uh, about him and we still miss him we still really really miss him may he uh, continue to uh, rest in peace thank you for your text but yeah I think a lot of people who are on that road uh, who have to drive it every single day because they've no choice because they work, they have to commute to work they have to bring their children to school, they live in that area, they they will know there are sections of it uh, really, really atrocious and I suppose it's when you come across it like Stephen did yesterday not used to driving on it, he was completely taken aback by the condition of it 0818 103 103, are you struggling to pay your electricity bill or your gas bill uh, if you are, I don't know how much will you take any comfort, it's cold comfort indeed to know that you're not on your own. I was reading a piece from the uh, personal finance um, journalist uh, Charlie Weston this morning in the papers where he says there's now been a huge spike in the number of households who are getting into arrears in paying their electricity and are their gas bills. Figures from the regulator now show 256,000 residential electricity customers are actually in arrears and that was in the three months up to June and that works out at about one in every eight householders are now behind on their electricity payments and I guarantee you if we could dig down further into those figures... I would imagine a large proportion of those households will have said in the past we were never in arrears on our electricity bill because people like to get the electricity bills paid off because they know the next one is going to follow suit in two months time and the last thing you need to do is to get into arrears and then the arrears start uh, mounting up. The numbers from the energy regulator in arrears on electricity it's up almost 55,000 when you compare it to the first three months of this year according to the CRU. Such a jump in the numbers in arrears, according to uh, Charlie, is now really is going to intensify pressure on the government to make sure they do deliver the energy credits in next month's budget and that they deliver more than one energy uh, credit. The hike in the number in arrears coincided. No coincidence uh, in the end of the recent energy credits. So as soon as the energy credits were taken away, I think the last one was probably paid out for that March bill. The bill that would have come in in March, that was the last one. So then the first bills started to arrive and people had problems paying those back. But what worries me Uh, if these are the bills up to June most of those bills would have been in the summer months we had good May and good June remember the weather was good so electricity use wouldn't have been as high because we would have been having the brighter evenings etc so it's a real worry if people are going into arrears at the time of the year when their electricity isn't as high as it will be into the period we're going into now. And of course, as we only spoke about yesterday when I had the Consumers Association on on the programme, electricity in this uh, country uh, is not one of, it is the most expensive in Europe and we have doubled In price, what we're paying for electricity is now double to what we were paying two years ago. So that's from the electricity. Look at the gas: 168,000 households are behind with their domestic gas bills up to June. That works out at almost a quarter of all residential gas customers. And of course, I have no way in looking at those figures because I don't even know if the CRU has a way of looking at those figures. How many of the electricity? households that are in arrears, how many of those are also in arrears on their gas bill, you can take it that many of them uh, will be in arrears in both uh, uh, bills. Uh, Derek Cassidy of the price comparison website bonkers.ie, he was asked uh, to uh, look over these figures and he says the energy credits, he said they were instrumental in keeping tens of thousands of households out of arrears over the past uh, two years as the energy prices reached record levels. He says the figures will now certainly be putting pressure on the government and we know that the government are at that stage of finalising next month's uh, budget. So he says they're going to have to provide further support for energy bills in uh, the October budget given that the price will remain extremely elevated certainly throughout uh, the winter months and we know the energy regulator that's what the Consumer Association was giving uh, out about they came out uh, last week, and said they can't see the price of gas or electricity falling anytime soon. They gave us absolutely no comfort and uh, no sense of hope that our bills would start to fall in uh, any way. And Derek Cassidy also uh, points out, and he's right to point it out, that in this country we have some of the poorest quality housing stock that would be in terms of energy efficiency. And when you couple that, we get very cold and very damp wind. wind winters, it means that we can suffer even more than, say, many of our European neighbours who might get a milder and less damp uh, winter uh, so they can cope better with higher electricity bills than we can uh, here. Derek Cassidy obviously is encouraging anyone, if you are in difficulty with paying your bills, please reach out to your supplier and that's an important thing to do because the majority, if not all of the suppliers, they have what they call hardship funds and they do help out the most vulnerable uh, customers uh, and even if they can can't help you out with knocking some of the money off the bill they can help you you know with re- repayment plans that will be tailored to your, ne- to your needs the rise in arrears comes as more than 400,000 households they're due to begin receiving their fuel allowance and this will be this certainly will help some of those families those payments are kicking in from this week the payment kicks in and it will run for the next 28 weeks and of course people now have the option they either get their fuel allowance weekly which works out at an extra €33 euro a week are, they can opt to get it in a lump sum. People like the idea of getting it in a lump sum because it means they might get a fill of oil or they might fill up the coal coal bunker or they might get extra blocks or whatever it is that they're using for energy. And some people on the fuel allowance, let's be honest, will also use it to pay off arrears maybe that they have on their gas or electricity uh, bill. And of course, as a result of changes that were introduced in last year's budget, more households will receive the fuel allowance this year than ever before. Now, it is paid automatically to people on certain benefits because it comes hand in hand with certain uh, benefits that they have to do nothing at all. But there are a certain cohort of people who must uh, apply. Uh, Eligibility, for example, changed for the over 70s, but they need to make a claim. They need to get on to the department. It is still means tested, but they certainly eased up on the means testing for over 70s. So there will be a lot of over 70s who in the past perhaps had applied for the fuel allowance and because their income was too high or maybe they had too much in savings, they weren't entitled uh, to it. To anybody who applied in the past, oh, in that over 70 category, please apply again because the means test is much more generous on what was announced in last year's budget and many, many more uh, people will be entitled to it. But they reckon over 400,000, it works out of 404. How thousand households uh, will get the fuel allowance. I mean, some will say 33 euro a week, you won't buy a lot with it, but at least it's a little bit of help. 0818 103 103. John Paul's taking your calls. If you want to text or WhatsApp, as you can to 0862 103 103, or you can email the programme cork today at c103.ie. C103 jobs. And the first vacancy this morning is for a mechanical slash electrical engineer. Now it's required for building services in Cork. CVs, please, to John Paul Construction Limited at gmail.com. Butterfant uh, Area Community Project. They've got a number of CE childcare assistant positions available across North Cork. 19 and a half hours per week. And if you would like further details, you can email your interest to admin at BACP.ie. Mobile tyre fitters are wanted in Mill Street. It's to provide call-out and breakdown services. Supply with an email to hr.ohtires at gmail.com. Or you can phone them, text them or WhatsApp them on 087-259-8825. And a part-time accounts assistant is wanted to work at Munster Drone Services in Mill Street. CVs and a cover letter to HR at com. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. You just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103.
1: Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. cmig.ie
2: With the government coalition leaders and all of the various departments working to put together the budget for next year, which of course will be announced next month, an advocacy group for people with spinal injuries. are so calling on the government to change the, current system around the granting of medical cards to their members and to discuss the issue I'm joined by Fiona Bulger and Fiona is uh, Chief Executive of Spinal Injuries Ireland. Good morning to Fiona.
0: Good morning Patricia thank Uh, you for having me on. Well good
2: to talk to you. Now I think people because I certainly was very surprised uh, to read and hear that somebody who suffers a spinal injury is not automatically entitled to a medical card. Is is it the standard means test you're talking about?
0: Absolutely. So I I just want to explain, first of all, uh, it's not just a spinal injury. It's a spinal cord injury. So these are people who are paralysed, you know, either traumatically or non-traumatically. People would be familiar with road traffic accidents or sports injuries or motorbike injuries or bike injuries. And we're seeing now more and more people sustaining uh, spinal cord injuries through, you know, other illnesses such as cancer or stroke So these are people who are paralysed for life. Their condition is never going to improve. And uh, they are not automatically entitled to medical card. Now, in the recent survey that we did, we estimate that out of 2,200 people with a spinal cord injury in the country, there's about 700 people who currently do not have a medical card. So we're not talking about a huge ask to government. You know, 700 med- medical cards in the scheme of things is not a huge amount. And the other most important uh, ask that uh, we're asking the government to look at is that not to review people on a one or a three-year basis, but to stretch that out to 10 years. Because the impact, if, if, if somebody's reviewed on a year-to-year basis, they they are worried so much that they're going to use, lose their medical cards. They stop, start stockpiling catheters or stoma bags, and then they um, they have the whole worry that what's going to happen, what, you know, the costs that are involved. If they don't have a medical card, they have no access to community services, if they need a new wheelchair, they don't have access to that, and that has a huge impact on people's ability to work. Yeah, because at the because end, they won't work if they think they're going to lose. Their yeah,
2: and at it. the end of the day, and as you pointed out, this is a lifelong condition. So reviewing yeah. people on their medical cards—it's not like they're suddenly going to get better from one review to the next review.
0: Exactly, exactly. And you can imagine the stress of asking—you know, having to answer questions like, "Has your condition improved?" Yeah. yeah you know,
2: and then getting all the paperwork together because it's means suggested. And tested. getting all the yeah, your financial
0: yeah. papers and everything together. You know? Yeah. It's a stress. And it's a stress underestimate that people don't need. the importance of people. Sorry.
2: It's a stress I'm saying that people don't need.
0: Absolutely. But people underestimate as well the ability for people to participate fully in society after sustaining a, a disability like a spinal cord injury. So last week we were in Leinster House and, um, you know, I mean, all, all the politicians are very supportive of our cause. We had uh, a great meeting with uh, Minister Anne Rabbit, who's Minister for Disabilities, and, you know, we'd be hopeful they're listening to, to it. But, but Dr. Emer Smith, who's um, the rehabilitation physician at the National Rehabilitation Hospital, she was in Leinster House with us. And she emphasised to all the politicians that... You know, the ultimate goal for people when they go to the National Rehabilitation Hospital is to return to work. And that has such enormous social, psychological and intellectual um, fulfilment for people. And it gives them a sense of achievement after sustaining their injury that they continue in the working life and they continue to contribute to society.
2: And would you hear of some of your members, uh, Fiona, and would you know of some who've admitted that they've turned down work for fear of losing that valuable medical card?
0: Yes, absolutely. People are afraid of their lives. They're afraid to buy a house. They're afraid to, you know, one thing which I think is shocking is that it's not just your own personal finances that are taken into consideration when assessing you for a medical card, it's your family. So, you know, if if you're living with a partner and the partner is earning money that can impact your ability to to get a medical medical card. And it's you know, we know like right all the research has been done that poverty for people with with disability is a huge issue.
5: Mm.
0: And you know, it it impacts not just the person who sustained the injury, but the whole family.
2: Yeah, because if it, 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 at times some of these uh, these spinal cord injuries can be the main breadwinner, and that's going to have huge Absolutely. implications yeah. uh, for the family. Yes. Yeah. And d- 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 I was kind of when I saw the figure, I was I hadn't really thought about it. Is it true that on average about three people a week suffer some kind of a spinal cord injury?
0: Is it as yeah, high as Yeah, that? that's right. I mean, statistics show that uh, three people. So it has actually um, it's it's probably that the traditionally you know the stereotypical spinal cord injury was young male you know road traffic accident sporting accident but in fact it has changed over the years and we're an aging population so um now every week we we would say there's probably one traumatic injury and there are two non-traumatic and the non-traumatic ones are the cancer related mm-hmm. or the stroke or yeah. You know, yeah, because when you, you know, we're
2: all, we're sadly too often reporting on, you know, devastating road deaths and catastrophes that are happening only, only last weekend, you know, four young lives uh, lost. Yeah. But often when we're, when we're reporting on road fatalities, it'll be mentioned that somebody else was taken to hospital. And we forget about the other person who was injured. And many of those are the people you're talking about uh, who that go on good, to yeah. have these spinal cord injuries.
0: Yes. Yeah. And, you know, they go through the whole trauma of, you know, it's like a, a spinal cord injury is described by the World Health Organization as one of the most devastating and life changing injuries that a person can sustain. And, you know, that says it all to me in that, you know, they people need to be supported. It's not a huge percentage of, of the population. We reckon there's probably about to, we have 2,200 people on our database and we reckon there's probably another 200 people out there that are not signed up to Spinal Injuries Ireland. But it's very, you know, even to even to be a member of Spinal Injuries Ireland, you have to be medically certified. So it's not people, people are not making these conditions I know. Up in order to get a medical card. You must be medically certified and surely that should be good enough. Yeah. In order to get a, a medical card.
2: And do they need a lot of medical support, particularly in order if they want to live an independent life as
0: possible? Yes. Well, you know, people really just look at, at the wheelchair or, you know, if, if somebody's walking with an aid, they, that's what they see as the injury. Unfortunately, you know, if you think of your cords running from the back of your neck right down to, you know, the base of your spine. Your your court can be damaged. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. anywhere along that area and you know depending on how high it is that dictates your your level of paralysis and not only does it mean that you cannot move your legs or your hands but it also means that the organs don't operate properly as well so people have huge bowel and bladder issues and you know sexuality is another issue and along with that goes huge mental health issues and the one thing that really Really, I find very hard to believe is that people suffer from chronic neurological pain. I always presumed I'm not a medical uh, medical person, but I always presumed that if you were paralyzed, you wouldn't feel anything. Yeah. But in fact, pain is a huge issue for people with a spinal cord injury.
2: Goodness me goodness me mm. so they mm. they will regularly need to attend be be a gp hospital appointments and all of the aids that go with that and if you've a Absolutely. medical card it's covered and if you don't it's not covered
0: exactly and you've to pay for it privately then
2: crazy just a crazy crazy situation you mentioned you, you were part of that delegation at Leinster House do, do you feel you got a fair hearing a good hearing
0: Yes, no, we did. And, you know, Patricia, you, you know how these things work all in I the know. follow-up now. So, you know, we're doing all the follow-up this week um, as well. But yes, we, we did. We, we, we found that we did get a very good hearing. And, you know, it, there seems to be quite a lot of support. But, you know, it's budget time. And, you know, you know, every day in Leinster House, there's a different group in lobbying for what they want. So you just have to hope that your number comes up. Yeah, but, as, some stage, at, yeah, but I think know. as you've
2: pointed out, it, 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 it's such a small uh, number, uh, Fiona. It really isn't going to break the bank and certainly not break the no. bank of, of the health uh, department, which are massively on overspent. OK, listen, you're, exactly. you're, you're fantastic advocates uh, for people with uh, spinal injuries. What else does Spinal Injuries Ireland, is it, is, it, is it a
0: support group? What else do you offer your members? Well, we're, we're there from onset of injury. Uh, for as long as people want us. So, for example, when somebody sustains an injury and, you know, the, the, the patient is then being looked after in a hospital medically, so we offer support and advice to the family members and we also provide them with counselling. Now, since COVID, our counselling budget has just gone through the roof um, because, as you can imagine, if, if somebody sustained an injury during COVID, And family members couldn't get in to see them. It it was just devastating, the worry. Yeah. So uh, that has gone. And then we we work with people. We have an outreach uh, team. So we work one to one with people in setting goals and helping them, you know, get back to work or get back to education, get involved in sports, uh, get involved socially. And um, we have we then work very closely. We're part of the uh, spinal cord system of care in the National Rehabilitation Hospital. So we do we do things like we have a boat in Dun Laoghaire. So we bring patients out when they're inpatients in the NRH. We bring them out on the boat. And, you know, it's a great day. If you can imagine somebody who, who's paralyzed, who really feels that they're never going to have a great day out again. Isn't it fantastic to be able to bring them out on a boat? Oh, and brilliant! We bring them back in and have fish and chips.
2: Oh, brilliant! And oh, brilliant. Uh, you do you do incredible work, and obviously, uh, your your members will be affected by something we mentioned earlier with the the healthcare uh, staff of the community and voluntary agencies. That's right. The, yeah, because the Irish yeah. Wheelchair Association is included in that. It is so. You, you, your members will be directly affected. It's
0: for, for our members as well because. You know, like quite a few of our members would need assistance in getting out of bed, in getting their breakfast, in doing their bowel and bladder care. So it's a it's huge concern.
2: Yeah, let's, let's hope that they'll all get around the table and heads will be knocked together, Fiona. Uh, they've three exactly. weeks to sort it. Listen, Fiona, real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for that and continue Thank the great you work you're much, doing. Thank you. Thank you Thanks a Bye-bye. That is uh, Fiona Bulger, Chief Executive of the Spinal Injuries Ireland. As I say, I was just really taken aback. I would have assumed that somebody who had a spinal cord uh, injury, they're battling enough in just to continue on with their live, lives and how their lives have changed and how the lives of their family members changed. I would have thought a medical card was an automatic entitlement but not so 0818 103 103 John Paul takes calls you can text or WhatsApp to 0862 103 103 we're going to be talking about pharmacies next and how some pharmacies are really under pressure at the moment what's been hailed as the first report of its kind on the pharmacy profession has found a quarter of pharmacists are likely to leave the industry com- completely and this is amid high levels of burnout to discuss what's going on and with an up Update on COVID and flu vaccines. I'm joined by Mallow Pharmacist, uh, Peter Weedle. Good morning to you, Peter. Good morning, Patricia. And you're welcome to the programme. Now, Thank this you. This report is from the Irish Pharmaceutical Society of of Ireland and the report found 73% of pharmacists in the community have experienced burnout. That's extremely high. Can you explain why?
6: Um, well, it's been a hard few years. As we all know, we've all went through the pandemic And I think during the pandemic, pharmacies stepped up and kept open and looked after their customers and patients, Uh, you know, visiting people and a huge amount of vaccination as well. But I think post pandemic, if we can put it that way, um, you know, everyone is stressed out and everyone is exhausted and there hasn't been enough time for recovery and what we're seeing is a lot of pharmacists who are just saying you know enough's enough I'm leaving they can go off to industry to hospital pharmacy uh, or and there's a lot of them going uh, back to college and doing medicine they for some reason they seem to think medicine's an easier career i think they might be in for a shock but
2: goodness goodness me and reading down to uh, the report getting cover seems to be a real problem for some
6: oh it's, it's huge patricia i mean again pre-pandemic and during the pandemic we would have had six pharmacists in our pharmacy including myself uh, we're now down to three and we just can't get anyone for the last year so we've been working with getting locums and some days we we can get two or three locums and other days we can't get anyone so it's just impossible it really is difficult
2: are we not training enough pharmacists
6: well we are i mean we opened up the school of pharmacy in ucc well the the 20th year now of intake this year and um, producing 70 graduates a year. So the number of pharmacists on the register is going up dramatically every over the last number of years. But they're all going elsewhere. You know, I think something like 20% went off to medicine um, and studying that and they're going to industry and, and elsewhere or just going out of the profession altogether. You know, they're highly qualified, highly educated people and they just say, enough's enough. Let's go and do something completely different.
2: And I'm, I'm just thinking of, of a pharmacist working, say, a, a solo pharmacist working on their own. Do, does that mean no lunch breakers? I mean, isn't the law there that you, you can't leave the pharmacy?
6: Correct. Uh, you're absolutely right. And uh, even in our own pharmacy, Patricia, like um, a year and a half ago, I said, that's it. We're going to close for half an hour for lunch. So from 1.30 to 2.00, we actually now close. And I'm sure some people might have been annoyed about that, but we just said we needed to take a break. We needed to ensure that we could get, uh, you know, something to eat, uh, attend to the necessities of life and, and, you know, reset and come back again. But a lot of pharmacies are operating, you know, long hours right through lunch breaks and they're not getting lunch breaks and not being able to get toilet breaks.
2: Goodness me. And then if they can't get a locum, say, to cover a holiday, it's quite possible...
6: Holidays? No, no
2: holidays. Whoa. No holidays, yeah.
6: And, and what is the solution, Peter? Um, well, there's a lot of solutions, and a lot of them were covered in the report. That probably doesn't go deep enough because the Pharmaceutical Society of Ireland is a regulatory body. It's part, of the, effectively, of the Department of Health. So there, there are a lot of solutions provided in that. Well, there's a huge level of uh, you know, administration, regulatory burden. There's been no increase in, in uh, the health services like the GMS fees in over 15 years. Limited career progression. No chief pharmacist. So we've, we're, we're effectively leaderless for the last decade or more. You know, where You need someone to drive the profession at a governmental level who has a vision for the future. There is no vision. It hasn't been there. And obviously challenging working conditions have been there as well. So, there, And there's been very slow progress on, on things like um, electronic prescriptions. I mean... Um, in Mallow, between the GPs and the pharmacies in Malo in 2016, we introduced an e-prescribing service. This was electronic prescriptions. Yeah. Now, with the pandemic, we've had the health mail introduced, which is effectively uh, electronic transfer by email of prescriptions. But that's not electronic prescribing. So we're way behind the curve in using technology to make uh, the whole health system better. Uh, and that needs to be implemented, you know, should have been implemented 10 years ago.
2: It's frustrating, and I can hear the frustration in your voice. Mm. There, there are solutions there, yes, but nothing, nothing yeah. seems to be happening.
6: And also, I mean, the, the, there's a lot of frustration in pharmacy when they look at the developments in, in other jurisdictions, Canada, Scotland, the list goes on, of, you know, we've seen what pharmacy could do with vaccination, and they did that. And there's lots of other roles and lots of other administrative things that could be taken out of the way of pharmacy to provide better health care. To the nation, again, all covered in the report, a lot more things to be done. And then I'm compounded now at the moment by massive drug shortages, which I'm sure are affecting a lot of your listeners um, literally on a daily basis where we just can't get certain medicines. It's a crazy situation. And then I
2: take it you and your staff face the brunt of that when, when patients get frustrated because they yeah. love their medicines. Yes,
6: oh, absolutely. Um, you know, we had a gentleman last week who threw a phone at one of my staff. Uh, ah. uh, which isn't, you know, I can understand the frustration, but uh, it was unnecessary. Yeah, uh, yeah. and if you face into situations like that on a daily basis, then you know it's wearing on on all the staff, and you know they. they their resilience gets worn down over a period of time, as we all do with, with the frustrations, as we all do.
2: And in the midst of all of that, and I, and I saw the Department of Health uh, mention uh, check-in with your local pharmacy, you're now at that time of the year for the autumn uh, autumn booster time of the year. So so let's talk for a couple of minutes, uh, I suppose, about COVID uh, first, uh, Peter. Yeah. Who's entitled to get the, the latest booster?
6: Oh, well, that could take a long time. Okay. <laughs> 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 it's it, 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 Again, it's got very complicated, but effectively, healthcare workers are all covered for COVID and flu for free. Anyone over 65 years of age, uh, COVID and flu, both are free, uh, courtesy of the HSC. It gets more complicated as you get younger, but if you're in the 50 to 64-year-old bracket, you're entitled to the COVID booster for free. And if you're immunocompromised, you can get the flu for free. But if you're not immunocompromised, if you want the flu, you have to pay for it. Okay. And then if you're under 50 years of age, uh, if you're immunocompromised, again, you're entitled to the COVID and flu vaccine for free. But you, there is, you cannot get the COVID booster at all um, if you're under, if you're forty 49 and under, unless you're immunocompromised. So if you're not immunocompromised, no COVID, and you can get the flu privately. And then for children between 2 and 12, there is the nasal flu uh, vaccine, which is free, but you, the no one under 12 is entitled to get the COVID booster.
2: So oh, I, it's, it's quite that's, Yeah, that's actually the question that I can see because I, I, I mentioned that you were going to be joining us and if anyone had uh, questions, can somebody under the age of 50 who doesn't have any kind of a serious illness, can they buy a COVID vaccine?
4: No.
6: No. No. No, that's... Um, there isn't... A, we, um, I cannot physically buy COVID vaccines. All the COVID vaccines are being supplied uh, courtesy of the HSE, thank you very much, um, I cannot actually physically buy a COVID vaccine.
2: So you have to give it to whoever is entitled to I, it? I, I, I can
6: only give it to the to, to, to those designated by the HSE as entitled to get it.
2: Has the vaccine changed in any way or is it the same vaccine?
6: No, it's a new vaccine this year. Um, it's updated. It's still uh, mRNAs which have been very, very successful uh, and I've been preaching about mRNAs for a number of years now. Huge potential here. Um, the new vaccine is now based on the XBB which was the variant that was circulating, or still is circulating in Ireland for the last um, let's say six months or more, Um, and that's very good. The concern with the new vaccine initially was would it cover this new variant that's not in Ireland, but it's in the US and the the UK, so it will be here soon, which is 2.86 called PERS, and testing by both Pfizer's and Moderna have shown that the new vaccine for the 1.5 is effective against this new threat of 2.86. That's so that's that's really good news. So really, anyone that should get the vaccine that's at risk, which is what the cohorts that the HSE have identified, really, please come forward, get the vaccine. The programme is starting literally next week. Uh, I think we're getting our delivery of hundreds of vaccines tomorrow. And um, it will be all hands on deck by the GPs, the pharmacies throughout the country. Um, uh, administering both COVID and flu, and you can get both at the same time if you're entitled to get them.
2: Okay, will there be vaccination centres? Somebody wants to know.
6: I don't know. There is talk of the, of the HSC vaccination teams visiting nursing homes, visiting schools. Um, obviously, they're all. Uh, that's probably where they're going to be occupied first, because it's very important. To look after the the nursing homes because that's been where a lot of outbreaks have occurred, and even across the summer there's been a number of outbreaks. So I'm not sure about uh, vaccine vaccination by the HSC. I suspect that it, in time there will be because when their teams are freed up from the important work they're doing in the nursing homes and schools,
3: then they, they may. Well, they
2: them. may. But for now, I know the Department of Health are saying check with your GP or check with your uh, pharmacy. I yeah. think you've answered this already. Can you get the flu jab and the COVID jab? On the same day?
6: Yes, you can, but, but opposite arms.
2: Oh, OK. OK, and when is the flu vaccine available? It should to be
6: available now. Um, again, we're getting our delivery tomorrow. Um, so uh, I know we're starting on Sunday. Uh, we're doing a big session on, um, on all day on Sunday. And we've a couple hundred people already booked in for that. So uh, it's starting now. Um, okay. And I think basically everyone was waiting on deliveries. Officially, the HSC say it's starting next Monday, uh, October the 2nd.
2: OK, Barry wants to know how soon after getting COVID, i.e. I had it a month ago, says Barry, can I get a COVID vaccine? I am in one of the groups Peter mentioned.
6: Yeah, the HSC have various rules for when you can and cannot get a vaccine. Um, so, if you've already had a booster or you've had an infection, it does vary a little bit. So you need to talk to the you need, Barry would need to talk to the GP or pharmacist. But in general, the absolute minimum is three months. But um, six. If, if you had a booster, um, it, they say six months. Again, minimum three months. And if you had an infection, it depends on. Um, other combinations Okay. would certainly no less than three months. but Realistically, I think they're recommending six months.
2: Okay, is is there a lot of COVID circulating at the moment?
6: Well, the, uh, at this point in time, maybe not as much as there was in August. Certainly, we saw a huge amount of uh, antivirals in the month of August, and um, got sold out of COVID tests umpteen times across August. So there was a there is an awful lot circulating. It's endemic in the population now. In other words, we're living with it, the same as flu. Um, it, is, it is a significant threat to those that are vulnerable, obviously those with chronic conditions and, and the elderly with chronic conditions. So, um, you know, we've just got to keep on doing what we're doing. We, 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 we're winning the battle. We haven't won yet.
2: OK, but if you saw a lot circulating in August Do you worry about the winter months?
6: I am petrified. My my staff keep on giving out to me for being pessimistic, and I'm not a pessimist, I'm an optimist. But, uh, yeah, I I think it'll be Armageddon come December into January, um, and it will be back on the news. It'll be hospitals overflowing, trolleys. uh, Please don't come to emergency departments. That's my prediction
2: for the new year Oh no, On that uh, happy note uh, not too happy note we leave it Uh, Peter listen pleasure as always thank you for that Thanks Patricia and thanks uh, for joining us that is uh, Peter Weedle who is a pharmacist in uh, Mallow and just the very latest on the Covid booster uh, for autumn and also for the go out and get your flu jab if you are entitled to it. Jerry is reacting to Stephen who contacted us from uh, County Kerry uh, to say he had occasion to drive from Kerry to Lismore yesterday and he could not get over the state of the N72 and described it as possibly the worst national road that he has ever driven on. And he reckoned when he the road from the Kerry border to the Waterford border he reckoned there was barely four good miles uh, in it. Jerry said the condition of the road from Cullen to Clonbannon Cross is like a bouncy castle, according to Jerry. Once you go across the border into Kerry the roads are perfect. Why are our Cork roads so bad? Now Local independent councillor, Frank Roach, was listening to Stephen's comment and he's also contacted the programme. Um, good afternoon to you, Frank.
5: Good morning, Patricia. Uh,
2: you're welcome. Meeting. Now, you, uh, while while I'm assuming from the comment I'm looking at here, you have sympathy for Stephen, but you kind of have an explanation as to why it's so bad. Well,
5: I'll tell you, um, Patricia, uh, as you're probably aware, this is my first term being elected to Cockham County Council. And I promised the people back in 2019, if they got me elected, that I would get the N-73 upgraded. Now, it was only this weekend, actually two years ago, I was organising my third protest on the N-73.
2: I remember talking to you from us.
5: And we, in fairness to the Harlios and the local people and the people that were using the road, they came behind me. And we, we actually, on three occasions, we protested on that road and we, we blocked it for a short while. Now, I fought very hard with the TII. I fought very hard with the the minister. And in fairness to the county council engineers, they did their level best to to help us everywhere along the line. Now, in the last two years, we have seen the way that that road has transformed. Water Dyke is absolutely brilliant. They're now starting at Anakisha, that section, which will probably take a year, a year, a year and a half. So, to be fair... I can't really be pushing TII to do anything on the N-72 until I have the N-73 section finished. But I will assure you, if the people come behind me and elect me, and when I get elected the next time around, I will be specialising on the N-72
2: because now, do, you, it, but you, cause do you agree with Stephen? It is bad. It is bad. It's
5: very bad. There's nobody denying it. There's nobody denying it. But why I'm not actually pushing at the moment for the N72 is we can close the two roads at the one time.
2: Yeah, yeah. And because and of, and you, you you are right. You are right. the The works that have gone on so far in the N73 it's like night and day. The difference. It's a road I know uh, extremely well. When when I have occasion to travel back to Clanmel to see family, uh, so it's a road I know well and it's like night and day the difference uh, in, in the new stretch
5: well the, the, the work they're doing at the moment in Anakisha uh, we can see what they after the number of weeks back it, it, it's going to be similar in Anakisha and yeah. the whole road from, from Mallow to Mitchell will will be very very good at that stage and like you say why am I not pushing for the N-72 at the moment that when they'll be closing the N-73 Anakisha section there'll be an awful lot of from Ray's Cross to Mallow being used uh, in, in in the bypass Um because of the close down. So we can't really start working on the N-72. And 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 I do accept that.
2: But are you going to have another battle? We know how long the battle took to get the work on the N-73 uh, completed. Will you have another battle for the N-72?
5: I'll guarantee your your listeners um, when I started in the N-73 people were kind of they were nearly left here. I should look there have been previous politicians for 40 years. The land was bought 40 years ago. There's nothing can be done, right? I will absolutely guarantee the people if they relate me, which I'm sure they will, next year, I will get the very same work done on the N seventy two.
2: And and is it just the amount of road that we have in Cork is the reason that we have stretches that are so bad? In comparison, say, to like people are saying the roads in Kerry are much better, the roads in Waterford are much better, but they don't have as much roads to cover. Is is that part of the reason?
5: But you are know, we four or five times the amount of roads in County Cork has, as, as any of the other counties have? And what, what, generally, I must, I, I'd have to start back here as well is the road tax for everybody that's paying here in County Cork, that's all going up to Dublin Central. And it's being distributed in, it's being divided out and just, and, and being distributed Now, sadly, the roads in Leitrim being done out of Cox Motor Tax. Now, my opinion is that Cox Motor Tax should be kept in Cork for the Cork Roads.
2: Yeah, but then what happens in Leitrim? They don't have as much road tax coming in. There has to be a fair system of dividing it. But I will accept we never seem to get our fair share of it here in Cork, regardless of how much we pay in. Because if you go down that route, you're going to have the dubs saying who have the highest proportion of road tax, they want to keep all their money. So, you know, I'm always slow to go down that route. But we just don't seem to get our fair share here in Cork because of the amount of roads that we have.
5: Sure, we've 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 superior uh, we've a way more roads than any of the other counties, and in fairness, our engineers—they are, they, in fairness, they are concerned. You'd meet them and talk to them; they're very reasonable people. But when you have money, you can do nothing.
2: Yeah. Okay. All right. But well, that's a, a kind of an explanation for Stephen and Kerry when he goes back again on the Lismore Road. He'll just have to put up with it certainly for another while. Well.
5: You can tell Stephen if he's travelling this road in in two to three years' time I will have it upgraded. OK.
2: All right, Frank. Listen, thanks for that and good luck thanks. with it and thanks for joining us. That is Independent uh, Councillor from North Cork uh, Frank Roach. Now, some other of your comments coming in. Miriam in Bandon, uh, was listening to the piece on the news with the childcare workers. We spoke about them last week. We know they're on a three-day strike action isn't it? They're out Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday but today uh, they're taking their protest to the gates of uh, Dáil-Aireann. Miriam in Bandon, though, isn't very understanding, I think, of the childcare workers and the providers. She said, what do they actually want? They are already receiving government assistance. Then in the afternoon, parents are paying to have their children looked after. I had children. I paid a babysitter. Then uh, they went to a creche and then at one stage, a neighbour and myself clubbed together. I would take hers one day and she would take mine on another day. I feel we are becoming a society looking for everything for nothing. Now, I think the creche providers will say that while they accept they're getting government assistance, just saying the core funding that they're getting is not enough for them to pay their staff so I think, I think that's the point and that's the reason that they're out and so many creches have closed today which I'm assuming has a knock on effect for parents trying to get their small ones looked after for the next uh, three days We did a piece on medical cards and medical cards for those with spinal injuries Hi Patricia, I listened to your interview about medical cards for those with spinal cord injuries, it's terrible That some people seem to suffer what I I can only describe as very genuine injuries and ailments, and they're getting little or no help. I know of a family whose son is diabetic. The whole family have a medical card because of the son's diagnosis. Like that to me makes no sense at all. Why would the parents get free medical assistance when it is their son who is sick? They aren't well off but they aren't poor either. Diabetes is bad but surely there are worse conditions that people need help with. The system seems odd and unfair. Now I all I can tell you is and I've dealt with enough people over the years who have fought, really fought to get medical cards. A medical card you don't get a medical card just because one child in the family has uh, diabetes. They would have been beans tested for the entire family. Um, it it isn't it isn't a case as simple as that as as you say. And and I'm always slow. And I'm always saying to people, it'd be very slow to criticise somebody else because you don't know what's going on behind closed doors you don't know their financial situation you do accept that they're not, they're not millionaires, you don't know what their financial situation is but I do know that in order to get a medical card the means test is really really strict. And someone else says Patricia on the issue of medical cards for people with spinal cord injuries are indeed cancer or those with any chronic illnesses. This should be and must be a priority for our government. Now this texter says instead politicians are handing out medical cards Will he need to the children of bankers, airline executives, judges, etc. And I don't know where you have the evidence of that, but I, if you have it, I would love to see it. Anyway, this to me says this texture is irrational because some parents can well afford medical bills, and those that can't would already have one because of the means testing rules. Meanwhile, we have very vulnerable people like the group you spoke about today with spinal cord injuries, and they appear to be ignored. Is it not a sad reflection on government policy? And yes. Uh, when Fiona Bulger of Spinal Injuries Ireland talk about this, the pain that people with a spinal injury can go uh, through, she, she is speaking the truth. One of my relatives is in a wheelchair. He was following a rugby accident a number of years ago and he says he can suffer from utterly excruciating painful spasms. God help him. Most people do not realise uh, that those with spinal injuries do endure such pain as they stoically and silently uh, cope with the cards that they are dealt with each and every one of them are really life's heroes yeah and their life is so turned upside down literally in the blink of an eye like for, for your own relative there going out to play a game that he obviously loved and while on a pitch a spinal injury um, you know some kind of an accident on the pitch leaves him with a spinal injury are the people I spoke about in a road accident they survived the road accident but then they're left with these devastating life-changing uh, injuries and they're injuries that are with them for life it's just I find it so hard to fathom that any of them would be asked to fight for a, a medical card on the mercy hospital that we spoke about earlier on today and the fact that the children's ward is to move to CUH a text Patricia when the children's ward in the mercy hospital ends up moving to CUH where do they think people will park their cars it's the patients attending CUH are the ones who are actually at the moment missing out uh, on appointments why because they can't get a parking space I cannot understand the people who make these decisions and it's sad after all the late Sister Fidelma. I wonder how many people remember Sister Fidelma from the Mercy Hospital, all the work she did for children in the Mercy Hospital. It's a sad, sad day in her memory to see paediatrics close at the Mercy uh, Hospital. And then just staying on that whole issue of a child being sick and I think that's what I think is at really at the core of the paediatric service is moving in the mercy, particularly for families who have very sick children who've been using that service and the child get used, gets used to going into the building, it's used to, you know, knowing where everything is and the staff and etc. And suddenly they're going to be moving to CUH and there's the added complications. And as, you know, so many people are pointing out with parking and the adding complications of travelling extra distance, uh, etc. And when you have a, a, ch- a sick child, you'll do anything to get help for that child somebody contacted us this morning to say that they had a very sick child last night so what did they do out of our service they rang South Dock, only to be met with an answering machine and the answering machine said the queue was full so they couldn't get through to anybody in South Dock to say they had a very sick child so what did they do they had head to A and E. They had no other choice but go to A A and E. I don't know whether they went to the Mercy A and E, uh, which will be gone when the paediatrics unit closes, or whether they went up to C U H. What is the story with South Doc? It is simply not good enough when you need a doctor. They are. It's another service that is absolutely a breaking point. On top of we spoke about the pharmacists and they're at burnout. There's so much wrong. It really is. It's you know it, at times you can get depressed thinking about what is. Wrong. Wrong with our health uh, system. I mentioned about the householders that are falling into arrears with gas and electricity. That has prompted John to raise the issue of petrol and diesel prices. John says in his area, petrol and diesel prices at the moment are both neck and neck at 183 uh, a litre. John also says home heating oil is at 118 a litre and that's high, isn't it, for home heating oil at a time when people will need to be getting their fills. John feels it is going to be a very, very tough winter for so many people this year 0818103103 and Gary in Cove on roads and the condition of our roads says um, where he drives roads are becoming a disgrace he cannot understand the amount of money that's wasted on footpaths if the same amount of money was invested in roads that's been invested in upgrading footpaths surely that would make a huge difference he never hears complaints about footpaths compared to the amount of complaints we hear about roads. Does anyone take into account in 2020 there was 1 million cars on the road and now in 2023 there's 2.4 million cars and I'm assuming the drop in 2020 was to do with the pandemic though, was it? Anyway, with all the taxes, and motor tax, fuel etc where is all the money going? Where is it all being uh, spent? There's a feeling, isn't it, that it goes into a great big black uh, hole. But just when you mentioned footpaths, I don't know if you heard me last week, I did mention a piece on footpaths. I think it was uh, Peter Horgan, the Labour rep in the city, uh, was talking about it. He did a Freedom of Information that showed just Cork City Council, it wasn't for the county, they had paid out a million euro in compensation to people over the last five years for trips, slips and falls on footpaths. And he was making the point that surely that money would have been better spent in doing up the footpaths, rather than have to pay it out in compensation uh, because accidents are uh, are happening. So accidents do happen on footpaths as well. But you are right, we have had a lot of work done on footpaths. Uh, do the roads, are the roads more important? 0818 103, 103. Michael from Limerick says, the Cullen Road is extremely bad. It needs to be done. An incoming car hit the windscreen with a stone, uh, hit my car. OK, so an oncoming car Stone flew up, hit Michael's windscreen and now I have to get a new windscreen next week. All these roads need to be done. Where's all the taxpayers' money going? You can text on WhatsApp to 0862 103
1: 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie.
2: The wonderful Glaslin Choir are restarting rehearsals uh, tomorrow, Wednesday in Bandon. They, they are a three-part ladies' community choir. And if you can hold a note and you'd like to go along, nothing better than getting involved in a choir. You can email Choir at gmail.com Artfield-Rathbury Gardening Club will meet on this Wednesday in the Parish Hall in Rathbury, 8 o'clock on Thursday night. The guest speaker is Matty from Future Forest in Kale Coffees and there will be plants for sale. And the annual Marymount Coffee Morning and Raffle will take place this Friday in the Gold Post in Chanagari between 10am and 12.30 Entertainment on the Day by Podrick Parker and the sacred heart parish pilgrimage to knock is also taking place on this friday 29th of september the bus will be departing the church grounds at half 7 in the morning and they're expected back in cork at about 9:15 cost is 50 euro it does include bus and meals 021 4346711 if you would like to go along. And finally, Newmarket Sports and Leisure. They're organising a scrap metal collection fundraiser. It's for local amenities in Newmarket. It's going to be held this Friday between 5 pm and 7.30. And then again on Saturday, 9.30 in the morning to 4.30 in the afternoon. And the collection is at the Astrotech Car Park at the GAA grounds. All types of metal are old fire machinery welcome, including tractors and cars, copper, brass, stainless steel, lead, and aluminum. Old car and tractor batteries plus motor and engines, all accepted free of charge. A collection service, by the way, is also available, but you need to call them at 087-6047400. Court
1: today on C103 with Corrigan Insurances McCroom Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. C M I G dot IE. Together at the Lodge Middleton on Sunday, October 1st from 1 to 5 p.m. This is a free mental health and well-being event for all the family to enjoy. Supported by the HSE and Cork County Council. We got to make it better. Meet your local HSE and voluntary mental health and community-based services in the East Cork area. Enjoy family fun events, great music and great food and lots more. Join us for Together at the Lodge on October 1st at the Middleton Lodge Park, Your Road. Brought to you by HSE cork Kerry Community Healthcare, Cork County Council and Connecting for Life Programme. With C103. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie. To Cork today on c103. The
2: first named storm of the season is set to batter Ireland tomorrow, bringing with it some damaging uh, winds. To chat about Storm Agnes, Alan O'Reilly of Carlo Weather uh, joins me. Good morning to you, Alan. Morning, Peter, I'm, how are you? I'm very well and you're, and you're very welcome and I've just been keeping an eye on uh, Twitter and you're doing fantastic uh, updates it's, it's the Storm Agnes because of you is actually trending at the moment on Twitter how bad is it going to get? I know you're following it out in the Atlantic at the moment
7: Yeah so it's a tricky one to forecast because it hasn't even developed yet it is going to start to deepen and develop really very quickly now through the season tonight and then push in overnight into the southwest. The latest weather models do upgrade the intensity a little bit. We kind of had gone from really very dangerous looking storm to being, you know, just more of a normal storm. We've gone a little bit more on the dangerous side, especially for the south and southwest of the country. We're looking at gusts over 100 kilometers an hour and a lot of heavy rain as well. So that's why we have an orange rainfall warning now but issued by Met Eireann for Cork and Kerry. Over 40 millimetres of rain is possible in 24 hours. I think, Patricia, two of the biggest issues here are the timing of the year and the timing of the day. So we still have a lot of, uh, obviously most trees still have their leaves covered in, Mm
2: -hmm.
7: which creates a bigger problem in terms of trees more likely to come down in strong gusts rather than the wind blowing through the trees as we would expect in another couple of weeks. That's the first problem, time of the year. The second problem is the time of the day. Rather than hitting over hitting overnight when most of us would be asleep, Agnes is going to really start to make herself felt in the West early in the morning and will peak through the day tomorrow. So really from probably 8 or 9 a.m. in the south up until probably more like 5 or 6 o'clock, um, it's really going to be very strong. And some of the weather models are showing gusts of over 90 kilometers an hour for five hours in the south.
2: That's a long period of time. It normally doesn't blow for that long.
7: No, and the problem is is that as the centre of the low comes through, there's going to be some very strong winds kind of on the, the, the front side of the storm if you want to take it. And then as the low moves up, then we get strong winds on the back of the system as well. So the lowest centre is where the calmness is and then everything around that on the south and the east of it is where we see the strongest winds. And that's what brings the south and the southeast and the east into the firing line, but Cork looks like it's probably going to take the brunt of Agnes, unfortunately.
2: And the strong winds then, as you say, could have the possibility of trees down. Danger, power outages, do you think?
7: Yeah, I'd say there is, unfortunately, because of the number of trees that could come down, there is likely to be some power outages, um, so charge up and look after that. I mean, you know, we do need to keep a level head here. We're not looking at a Ophelia or Darwin-type scenario, but we aren't looking at a normal bit of yellow weather warning either which are kind of I think a lot of the time people are either in one or two boats as where this is in the middle this is you know it's a serious storm um, it's the time of the year and the time of the day combination and the heavy rain along with the strong winds that's going to make it feel really nasty through the middle of the day
2: But as you say it's not for the entire country
7: Well no I mean it will move up across the country but not everywhere will see the strongest of the winds like the, the, the inland midlands and, and kind of I suppose North Midlands will probably stay within kind of the centre of the storm really and miss the strongest but it will still be a rough day right across the country it's just the particularly strongest winds will be in the south and east
2: Driving conditions I imagine Alan be pretty tricky tomorrow
7: Yeah especially with the combination of heavy rain and strong winds the heaviest of the rain will be in the morning but still raining until probably 4 or 5 o'clock in the evening um, a risk of some embedded thunderstorms as well, possibly, in that system. Um, and it's going to go from kind of very, you know, nice conditions today to, to change dramatically overnight. And unfortunately, people kind of sometimes think, ah, there's no storm coming, it's grand now. But this is going to move in very, very quickly. And it will move through, like Wednesday night, it will clear. But we have some more windy conditions, nothing as bad. We have some more windy conditions on Thursday with some more heavy showers. But the good news is, is Friday looks good. So, a uh, bit of respite on Friday before another wet and windy day on Saturday. Oh God!
2: Have you any good news for us? Um, Friday, Friday, <laughs> Friday. Friday. Good okay. Good news. Okay. okay, so in the meantime, as you say, it's very much the camp before the storm uh, today. Uh, take a look in your garden. Anything that you needs to be tied down or anything that needs to be moved today is the this afternoon. Is the time to be doing that.
7: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, there's always going to be a picture of a trampoline by tomorrow afternoon having lifted into someone's garden or road. So if you still have the trampoline out, just make sure it's secure. And anything else that, as I say, is liable to move and is heavy enough to cause damage. And and watch out for for trees. And look, in the middle of the storm, please don't start cutting trees. It's Mm. going to be a long storm because, sadly, we have seen lives lost where a tree comes down and somebody tries to do the right neighbourly thing that they think and to grow and clear it. But, you know, the problem is, is that with the duration of this storm, you could see more strong gusts after, say, that tree comes down. So just leave it till tomorrow evening. There's nothing that can't wait a few hours. I, mean, I think one thing that COVID did teach us is that staying indoor for a few hours is no big deal, really.
2: Yeah, a bit of patience. OK, and uh, people can follow you on uh, Cairo Weather for uh, updates. Uh, listen, pleasure as always, Alan. Thank you for that. Thanks, take care. and uh, thanks for joining us. That is Alan O'Reilly of uh, Carlo Weather in advance of Storm Agnes. I just think the name Agnes sounds so funny, doesn't it? it doesn't just really sound like a storm that we should be very afraid of? Uh, but bear it in mind, as I say, it's going to be, as Alan pointed out, a daytime storm tomorrow. It's going to be pretty miserable all round
1: you 're listening to c103's Cork today podcast phone and text lines are currently closed
2: Joe heffernan uh, joining us uh, this afternoon good afternoon to you Joe good afternoon
8: Patricia
2: and last week we spoke about sad seasonal affective disorder and how people can yeah. get low uh, during the winter months so today we're going to look at how people can be can, can be more resilient I suppose as we face into yeah. the winter months and you yeah. want you want to look at, at uh, models of what makes somebody resilient? And and, and you've got yeah. five similar resilient mindset habits. And Absolutely. I think, I I've, I was reading down through these before I came on air this morning and all of these really make sense. So yeah. go, go, go down through them. These are people who, and we all know people who are very resilient and you look at them and you think, oh, I couldn't be more like them and why are they so resilient? So it is all to do with a sort of a mindset and you start with, they pause instead of acting impulsively.
8: Well, Uh, impulsive action uh, say fueled by anger or fear usually doesn't give a good outcome. In other words like, um, uh, as I said in the research I did there, the value of the pause um, in a time of stress and uh, adversity uh, is a great uh, weapon as it were to have Um, because sometimes we say or do things, on impulse, because the feeling is um, uh, running the show. In other words, it's emotion over intelligence rather than head over uh, feeling. Um, So if we can at all, no, I I mean, uh, wisdom is sometimes, uh, it only comes with um, a lot of mistakes and a lot of, uh, you know... We learned our lessons the hard way, um, but we maybe hopefully can learn to think before we act. In other words, the pause is very important rather the, uh, than the impulsive either statement or action or both. Um, uh, There'll be a better outcome if a person has a bit of a think before they
2: act or speak yeah take take a bit of a, a breather it's a take little bit a, like take a breath it's yeah. a little bit like how many people have regretted in anger sending a text or an email and if you had waited and thought yeah. about it you wouldn't have sent it but sometimes it can be too late now people who have a resilient mindset they can work through discomfort
8: yeah yeah, you, we all know the song, I think. Um, when you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. Now, in a way, those are very profound words. And and if we could do them, if we could act on them, I mean, um, we'd be doing extremely well. Um, so that, like, um,
7: uh,
8: there we, anyone can be good on a good day. But working through a bad day, or a bad time, or a bad week, or a bad month, um, can be can be tough, um, and and um, you know we need to just keep putting one foot in front of the other as it were, and just maybe just keep going the odd time. Um, uh, no, it's difficult. I mean. Um, uh, uh, I think it's probably one of the great basis, the basic reasons behind addiction, that people want to escape as the 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 situation, the thinking that they're in. So, um, you know, the um, the extra glasses of wine are the um, the. Uh, you know, the drug scene that we often talk about, which is... Um, you are
2: over, over-medicating uh, yourself.
8: And all of that, right. Yeah, Mike. yeah. So...
2: That, it um, seems like the easy solution, but it's not.
8: It's not, you see, because the, the big thing about it is that it doesn't work. Um, so alcohol or um, other ways of... Um, inappropriate ways of escaping um, are, are, are not good. We need to be able to maybe say to ourselves this too shall pass. Now, you know, it mightn't pass by this afternoon and it mightn't pass by tomorrow. But, um, you know, everything passes eventually, mm. uh, including ourselves. But um, we'd hope that that wouldn't be the, uh, the answer to it, but that we would get through the bad times. Okay, So and working through discomfort.
2: Yeah, and then resilient people, and I think this is an important one, they practice self-care. They know how to look after themselves
8: they do, they do, and I mean that can be, um that needn't be um, um, a big massive uh, thing um, are we getting enough sleep would be a very good question during times of of stress um, uh, are we doing a little bit of exercise, maybe a big bit of exercise with some people um, or maybe people like me, small bits of exercise, um are we getting outdoors a little bit? No, I don't think we will be practicing that one tomorrow by the sound of the forecast. But um, are we getting outdoors a little bit? And, you know, lots of people uh, would have a pet and they would walk the dog or they would stroke the cat or they would pick up a book. Um, whatever, um, whatever helps. But we do need to practice a bit of self-care. And I mean, it doesn't mean becoming, you know, uh, uh, selfish. We're talking about self-care.
2: Yeah. Um I listened. Yeah. I, I listened to an interview with um, Deepak Chopra. You know, the, oh yeah, the meditation guru. Oh my god, the man made just so much sense, and it's all about. Uh, Self care and wellness, it just, and yeah. looking after your mind. And then that goes on to looking after your body. It just, it was, yeah, I just thought, God, if we could all live like that, the man yeah. really has nailed it, he, he, yeah. he really has so meditation yeah. is, is a great thing, it doesn't have to cost a lot it doesn't have to take a lot of time uh, either and, and yeah. one that I would 100% agree with, resilient people know how to turn to humour and humour is always uh, great
8: Just to go back to the previous one for a second, I remember about 50 years ago a person said to me, Joe if you want to find the enemy look in the mirror and I took that to heart, and I've quoted it a thousand times since. Um, and it's true that the person that we have to take on uh, sometimes is ourselves. Mm. And yes, I agree with you 100%, the bit of humor. Yeah. that um, you're, There's very few issues that there isn't some bit of even black humor to be found somewhere. Um, and, you know, the ability to... Um, to, to have a laugh, even in, in, in bad times, is a kind of a form of survival. Um, I, I remember reading time after time after time that people, uh, especially we'll say police um, and um, maybe paramedics and all of that, that uh, when they get to some of these bad scenes, that a bit of black humor can help. Yeah. You know,
2: and we all um, we all know we all think back on, say, a, f- a funeral. No matter how sad a family funeral was, but there was always humour. Somebody did something, and you know, it's in mm-hmm. years to come. You look back and you laugh about it, and you think at a at a time when when everything seems so dark, and something light or humorous uh, will happen. So it's a, so yeah, yeah, I I think humour is great, and then resilient yeah. people accept the present. What do you mean by that?
8: Well, you see, it's not complacency. It's um. It's uh, this is how things are. Um, I need to maybe keep the head down and keep the feet working for um, for for a while right now. And um, so we'll say that we're like a ship on the, uh, or a, a small boat, we'll say on the on the sea, and that we intend to go east, but now the wind blows and takes us um, north or south. And that we can kind of go with that and say, OK, OK, I'll get back on track. But in the meantime, um, uh, our sails are taking us where we hadn't originally planned to go. So while it's absolutely necessary in life to plan and to prepare life for life, um, you know, uh, sometimes um, it, it just, the, the plans don't work out. It isn't I-
2: always plain sailing.
8: Exactly. Couldn't, you could not possibly put it better with the analogy about the boat on the sea. Yeah, it's not always plain sailing. And we need to maybe go with the wind uh, the odd time and, um, you know, accept that, um, uh, that we're not going positively in the direction that we want to go um, at this very time, but to hold on, um, take a breath. Um, do a bit of the mindfulness that you were talking about and to develop, a, um, a, a sense of acceptance. This is how it is today. What can I change? I can think of a little list maybe. A, B, C. I can change those. What can't I change? And that might be a bigger list. That might be A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I. But, um, if we can just accept that. Uh, for the time being. Mm-hmm. Now, again, it doesn't mean being, you know, uh, complacent. It doesn't mean, you there's nothing I can do, so I won't bother. Uh, what we can do, we should do. But what we can't do, we need to accept. Okay. And sometimes that's, uh, you know, a little bit of a mental battle.
2: OK, and, and uh, to finish off then, uh, you've got three questions that people should stop and think about.
8: Yeah, like um, the the five uh, items that we mentioned there now, um, which one of those um, resilience habits um, would you like to adopt? Um, you know, which one kind of made sense and um, what can you do um, uh, about that? What's the first step you could take to implement that? And as I often say, it doesn't have to be a big deal. It could be send that email, make that phone call, Send that text, or you know whatever. But um, so um, that's to what's the first step that you need to do to implement uh, whatever one of those um, five uh, items, issues, whatever the word is that you would like to do? And when are you going to do that? I mean, are you going to say I'll do it tomorrow? Um, are you going to say I'll do it next week or are you going to say do you know there's nothing preventing me from doing that this afternoon
2: yeah have a starting have a starting point yeah okay okay yeah. and uh, Mike says with regard to the piece about acting impulsively go with what you know not necessarily how you feel someone else <laughs> says we are more durable than we are vulnerable never forget that and uh, Anthony says, I spotted this in a cafe in Ennis yesterday. Life is like a sandwich. You have to fill it with the best of ingredients. <laughs> that's, it. that's a good yes. piece of advice. OK, that's where yes. we leave it. Listen, thank you for that. Have a lovely week and we'll chat to you next Tuesday. Thank you, Patricia, Thanks, and likewise. And Joe can be contacted uh, by mobile on 086 834 8145. 086 uh, 834 8145. That's why I leave you for today. Thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Mark in for Nick. Talk to you on a stormy tomorrow. Cork Today on C103. With
1: Corrigan Insurance's McCroom. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. C-M-I-G dot I-E.
8: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.